Go back into South Bend's history. 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, and what do you see? You see groups of people working to bring change to this city. They had different ideas of what that change should be. They didn't always agree. Yet, in every decade, there were groups of people for whom positive change was their life's passion. This podcast, South Bend's Own Words, features the voices of people who helped make the city change. We'll play you selections from the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center's Oral History Collection with the goal of telling you a more complete history of the city. It's the story of many cultures, not just one. It's the story of South Bend. Dr. Irving Allen is the son of Elizabeth Fletcher and Jay Chester Allen. They were quite different from each other personally and professionally, yet they combined their skills to challenge discrimination around the city. They became a powerhouse couple. As black professionals, though, the Allens faced their share of aggressions, mostly from their South Bend neighbors and colleagues, and even from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. They aided some of the earliest students of color at the University of Notre Dame. They started their law firm together and became the first of many things. Jay Chester was the first African-American man to serve on the South Bend Common Council, and Elizabeth Fletcher was the first African-American to serve as a county judge. That list of firsts goes on and on. In August 2004, Dr. Allen sat down with Dr. Les Lehman, David Healy, and John Charles Bryant. Dr. Allen spoke about his parents' perceptions of racism, their history of advocacy, and their long legacy. John Charles Bryant. You were just about to tell me about your mother's um, family connection there to Talladega. Yeah, she, um, her parents, I think, both graduated from there. I think I have in the car their degrees. I'm going to give those to Leonard Smith, who's a trustee at Talladega now. Um, so anyway, she graduated from Talladega probably in the 20s and um, came up to Boston for law school, and that's where they met, probably in the mid-1920s. They eloped and got married in some place called Playstow, New Hampshire. Cause they, uh, I think they feared objection from her parents, and uh, so they just eloped. And then I think were separated for a long time when he came out here, and she must have joined him in uh, 31, 32, something like that. He came here when? 29. 29. So she stayed and finished law school. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess by that time, he already had his practice up and running. Uh, I guess so. I think he probably did different things. But, yeah, he he must have had something established by then. Did Did she practice with him? story is, is that she began practicing around the time I was born, and that within a week or two after I was born, hopefully not because of where I was, uh, <laughs> she uh, went to work. And uh, now whether she had been working some before then, I don't know. I think around the time I was born, or shortly thereafter, her parents must have been sort of semi-retired. All I know is my maternal grandmother started spending a lot of time up here. So she was around to take care of us. And uh, and they had various people, Mrs. Ross being the main one who took care of us uh, uh, from then on. 
So I think around 39 is when she really got into her full-time practice. Did they practice together? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's Alan and Alan law yeah. firm from whenever they yeah. officially were a thing till the early 70s is when that, oh, no, I think it back probably early 60s was when things kind of came unglued, I'd say. And your, your family was very, I would say, political. Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about 1939. 1939 is when your mother wrote the letter to Eleanor. Roosevelt, somewhere in there. Yeah, I think it was later. Um, well, I know I've got an article here that uh, she supported Wendell Wilkie yeah. in 1940. Okay, so, so somewhere in 38, 39, she must have switched uh, political affiliations. And obviously she was a woman who, when she made her mind up about something, she definitely made her mind up. Because mm-hmm. she wasn't hidden about the fact that she was a Republican and she's in the paper mm-hmm. supporting Wendell Wilkie. What do you remember about that? That your father was a Democrat, and your mother was a Republican, and she also, according to one newspaper article I read, she filed to run for a political office, mm-hmm. and then she was convinced that your father would have a better chance of winning, so she withdrew. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about the politics in your family? Political office, I don't remember what that was about or what office she... Um, you would have been about two years old. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, as far as this is concerned, housing was an issue. Namely, um, housing was segregated, of course. And she had written Eleanor Roosevelt seeking support for integrated housing for black folks that same opportunity for government-funded housing yeah. as uh, anybody else. And... Uh, uh, Roosevelt sent back this long-winded, pretentious letter rationalizing the situation and that you know, the races couldn't live together. And that was the trigger, as I understand it, for this uh, angry departure from Democratic Party. Now, you have to remember, she was from the South anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, Democrats in the South, up until 1968, 70 or so, were, were nothing but you know, Klansmen and racists and stuff. So I imagine it was an uneasy situation for her, given her past all along. But uh, the letter from Roosevelt did it for her. I remember, again, I can't because my mind can't keep all of this in there at one time, but she also, you know, that connection with Talladega, there were a number of uh, students from here that went to Talladega. Charles Ash. Yes, Charles Ash was Smith. one. Paul. Uh, Paul Smith. Uh-huh. Uh, she got scholarships for I know. Who was the guy out east in Vermont? Um, I know there were a bunch of people. Yeah. She was very good at doing things for people. I think collaborating at a peer level with people was another was another matter, but these are all things that she and Daddy did for the black population, and much more than Daddy. She, I think, um, ultimately saw herself as kind of above folks, mm-hmm. and able to do things for people who were being oppressed and mm-hmm. uh, cheated out of a, a decent life. I should make a footnote that, that as an adult, I've come to realize and, and imagine 
that Mother in particular, I don't know what her life was like as a lawyer around here, but I can only conjecture that uh, the crap she took in mm-hmm. the tour as a woman lawyer and a black woman lawyer in this town through the 30s and 40s and 50s, and she wasn't one to come home, at least in, uh, at least I don't remember. Well, I can't say that. I, I remember there were certain certain names of judges and all that that would come up who, you know, she just despised and felt mistreated by. But by and large, I don't think she, uh, I don't think she had any idea, wasn't going to let that stop her. But, you know, you got women now out east, or I imagine around here who still get their acclaim for being the first woman this or the first woman this. Well, this is back in the dark ages of uh, women. In any event, she, even more than Daddy, had a, a poor capacity to separate work from the rest yeah. of her life. And I did. I would just imagine the shit she took yeah. must have been unimaginable. Okay. And your dad went, to, where, where did he do his undergrad? My father's folks emigrated from Charleston, South Carolina area in 1900. He was born in 1900, and they were in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So uh, he went to Brown, which is in Providence, Rhode Island, probably influenced by several things. Brown was a fine school at the time, but I think there was an Episcopal priest who encouraged him and some others to do the higher ed thing. And and he went to Brown as an undergraduate right. as well as on to law school. Right. Ironic twist is that he was in the class of 23 at Brown, and there were seven or eight black guys in the class, which was six more than were in my class <laughs> in 1961 graduate. Which I thought was very interesting. That is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I think those times were... A little slippage there. Yeah, way, way slippage. Yeah. Yeah. Did he... Were you... I guess how long was it? Was he self-consciously or seen as a black politician? Or was he basically representing a political point of view? Because as I understand it, I believe he is the first. Isn't he David the first... Uh, black uh, rep- state representative from, from here? From here, maybe. From here, not, not the first in the uh, yeah, state. But there was maybe one, maybe yeah. two ahead of him in the state. Hmm. You know how he saw himself? Yeah, both. I guess there's two parts to that question. How he saw himself and how other people... Well, I think he was, was saying he was a black politician who represented broad points of views that... Uh, um, look, yeah, he would have seen himself as a black as a politician. I think he was probably uh, very good at outside being perceived as you know, not just a black politician, and that was entirely accurate. I mean, he was one of those people who could see a linkage between black issues and uh, labor issues, for mm-hmm. example, and, uh, and other social issues. They had many uh, white folks in their law practice not big lawsuits where you're going to come away with a third of a million dollar settlement. I don't think they got any of those, but uh, they were advocates. Um, and I've appreciated <clears throat> that more and more because I'm a psychiatrist. And <clears throat> from the get-go in training, um, 
I've been very different from many of the other people who go into psychiatry, for, for whom a major tenant, at least when Freudian theory was big, was, was basically not believing your patients and everything was in your head and whatever happened to you was not that important as what you made of it. And I've never been of that philosophy and realized the huge difference between me and most of my colleagues, namely you you take in what people say, you you believe it until proven otherwise and yeah, the bad things that happen to people do change what mm -hmm. people think and feel and it isn't just what I made of a traumatic incident and I think that came directly from my folks attitude about people he in particular he had a remarkable philosophy and all that I, it's unfortunate I don't think he's somebody who would sit down and talk about it particularly unless you snuck up on it in a conversation but no he could relate to about anybody mm -hmm. well it's always been a little bit of a mystery to me as to how the two of them came to South Bend well the the legend is, is that he was actually, um, after graduating from law school, that he was, I've heard, either Indianapolis or, or Chicago, and the car broke down here. And uh, he ended up staying <clears throat> over on the west side and somehow, for some reason, decided to stay. There was some legend that he decided, well, he'd try to be a big fish in a little pond rather than a little fish in a big pond. But that's a story I've, I've been told, whether that's true or not, I don't know. He never elaborated, uh, that was the only story you ever knew? Uh, yeah, and I, I, I don't think he ever objected to that story. But in any event, one of the stories I've heard is that he had a chance to uh, get some fairly significant level, level position in Washington in the in the 40s uh, uh, and after some issue they turned it down or he turned it down feeling like I guess it was insecure uncertain and political stuff like that but I would guess that was kind of a turning point because uh, who knows where that would have gone right. but you know they knew people like Ralph Bunch and all Black folks knew each other yeah. in those days because there were so few of us, and so they, they knew these people. They were well connected, but they decided to stay in South Bend, which I'm, I'm guessing was not a good decision for them. So financial, probably a financial decision. At uh, the time, a short-sighted yeah. financial decision because, you know, fine, the administration changes, but... Uh, who knows what links or contacts, and they were big into that. They, they both were very political people, so they would have landed on their feet very nicely if they mm -hmm. moved on to different terrain. Well, which parent do you think wanted to stay here in South Bend more than the other? The story always was mother. My, this is guesswork, but my theory is she, she could not have made that happen if he hadn't kind of gone along with it. Maybe, maybe he, um, I don't know, maybe he got anxious about moving on and moving up and being in a bigger pond. And my folks always had a certain amount of ambivalence about black elite social life. Uh, I think they were very conflicted about that. I think, uh, I think they both would have liked to have been well off, mother in particular. But, but they were profoundly ambivalent about it. I think both of them were. I think mother wanted to be in that big time and wanted that prestige. On the other hand, 
uh, she despised it. It was in kind of contempt of showing off, flashiness, uh, however they described it. My folks had a terrible time as the 60s rolled on because the new militancy uh, did not respect necessarily what people like them and Curtis's and Streets had done. So they were seen as uh, accommodators and white folks and black skins and uh, they began, for example, to get harassing phone calls, people calling them up, cussing them out, and uh, they, they couldn't handle that. They were afraid if they got into their late 60s that something was going to happen to them. And Daddy was still on all these boards and things. How he could be on the draft board was beyond me. But uh, a kind of conservatism or conservatism streak and wanting to be integrated, all of a sudden, the frailty of trying to maintain that position as things really started to change. They, they were very vulnerable and didn't, couldn't respond to that very well. They believed in integration. They believed in integration. They believed in education. They were lawyers, so they obviously profoundly believed in the rule of law, ultimately. And one of the beliefs that we had contention with fairly early on was they believed only ignorant people were racist. And uh, they thought if you looked right, acted right, wore the right clothes, conducted yourself in the right way, you would be all right. Well, fairly early on, I had problems with that and didn't always look right or dress right or something like that because my attitude was a racist is a racist. It doesn't matter how you look or how you... I, I refused to twist myself in the knots, trying to look right so that other people would accept me. Well, they, they powerfully believed in that stuff. Mother had cracks in that. Every now and then when she'd go off, she would go off big time because she knew that wasn't true. They had these profound beliefs, ultimately, in integration and that if we uh, acted right and, and delivered when we did get in. And these aren't incorrect beliefs, but there's more to it than uh, yeah. uh, how we look that's going to govern how we're, we're treated or perceived. So they weren't ready when the complexity of the 60s kind of hit and uh, rolled over. South Bend's Own Words is produced by Seth Umbaugh and me, George Garner. It was created by Kevin Tid Marsh and I through the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center. We're housed in the former Engman Public Natatorium, a once segregated South Bend swimming pool. Visit us and learn how that history of oppression echoes through the city today. We give guided tours and offer public events that share knowledge, art, and culture, and we organize people to act on the issues facing our city today. You can see and hear more history, plan your visit, or send us your feedback, all at crhc.iusb. Thank you.